0: As a leader, you have to make sure you're not just going with what's comfortable for you. You're not just going to the same methods you used before. You know you have to always be questioning internally, am I doing this because I'm comfortable with it or am I doing this because it's the right decision? There's another great book on that that escapes my mind right now that I, that I listened to recently around, always question. And a, that's the biggest thing I look for in leaders, Bethany. If someone can be part of the team be open-minded to where they might have experienced something differently and there's a new way to try something, that's the best you can ask for in a leader. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful
1: that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome Breakline community and welcome Dan Streetman. It is such a pleasure to have you back. You've come many times. We're so thrilled to get to chat with you again. Team, I want to fill you in on something. Dan, I think was Breakline's first or second supporter ever. And I remember I was still at Stanford. Someone introduced me to you, Dan. I can't remember now who that was, but for some reason, you said, I'll come down and meet with you in person at Stanford. We were sitting on a park bench on the Stanford yeah. campus. I was telling Dan about my idea for Breakline, and he said, hey, I'd love to help out with that and pulled us in to companies like BMC and TIBCO, now thrilled to have the chance Dan, to have a fireside chat with you in your current role as CEO of Tanium. So well, as always, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Bethany. Yeah, well, I was at Salesforce at the time and it just created VetForce and we'll get into why. And so you did your actually first session, right, in Salesforce. That's in right. office in our building. So yes. I was very happy to do that. And it was a wonderful idea. And it's so awesome to see where it's headed still and where it's grown and see so many familiar and awesome faces here on the Zoom as well. So hello, everybody. Great to see you.
1: So, Dan, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, but everybody here knows, currently CEO of Tanium, previously CEO of Tipco, before that, roles across many companies in Silicon Valley, you were EVP of worldwide sales and marketing at BMC, you were at Salesforce, you were at C3.ai, and many other outstanding brands. So just an incredible journey and career within the tech sector. Fun fact, Dan is also an Ironman athlete, and he will be participating in the Florida Ironman competition in about a month. So we'll get into all of that. But Dan, as we kick things off, we'd love for you to just share a little bit more about yourself with our community.
0: Oh, I appreciate that, Bethany. And yes, doing Ironmans are kind of like my yoga. It's my way to disengage and think and take out noise, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. So thanks for breaking the ice on that. because. As I shared with Bethany and Casey, you know, I oftentimes ask people, "How do you tell the difference between someone that does Ironman, CrossFit, or now plays pickleball?" And people look at you, and I'm like, "You don't have to. They're going to tell you within like one minute of meeting you that that's what they do." So, if we got that out of the way. I feel better now. It makes it, you know, fun to do. So, quick background, and I'll and I'll try to abbreviate because I know folks like Zane can probably share my background better than I can. But I went to the United States Military Academy and graduated in 1990. Went to a 4 deployed base in Vicenza, which at the time was just a battalion, and learned a great deal about the military. I loved, you know, jumping out of planes and doing those things. Had a chance to command, and then I was actually on my way to go teach at West Point. And they'll, if you're going to teach economics, they'll send you to business school. And to be blunt, in 1998, I just got very excited about where technology was going. I loved serving. I loved the value of working alongside my teammates and getting to know each other and doing common tasks. And I learned that right, no single person can ever do more than a team can. But I also got very excited about where technology was going. So, about a month before business school, I called you know the army and said, "Hey, uh, send one of my alternates to the program to teach." My next call was to a bank, which is, "Hey, how do I pay for this?" I had two little kids going to business school in Boston. You know they. Eight Cheerios paid for by loans. So it was a risk. And like my, many of us are doing now, right? You know what's comfortable, you appreciate service, but it's also a way to figure out how to continue to serve. And I also tried to remain in the reserves. I wasn't very successful at that with two little kids and a demanding boss, which Anne can tell you about from her husband. So I stayed in the IRR and I did end up being deployed again in 2008 to 2009, which makes this a full circle discussion. I loved working in technology and I've had the chance to build my career there. 10 years after leaving the military to go back and serve was very instructive to me because my eight years were hard, Ranger school, you know, jump master school, all those aspects of it, but they didn't compare at all to what the generation that's joining us here on this call, you know, went through in their same eight years. So I became very enthusiastic about finding ways to support transitioning veterans. And of course, I learned that it was a total win win. If we could build the bridges to folks who thought that, hey, I'm not represented in this industry, I don't know how to get started and get great teammates, we'd have a wonderful opportunity. And so first started at Salesforce and created a program called VetForce, which is now Salesforce Military. And we provided free training to veterans and their spouses to enable them to come into the ecosystem. That's how I met Bethany. And that's how I became a broader fan of all these aspects. I'll be blunt. I do love kind of driving change and doing that. So I PCS every four or five years, take on a new challenge. And the one thing I always look for is, right, is this an exciting place and point in time, right, in that company? Do they have a market that's interesting? Is it challenging and can I grow? Is there something that I can bring where I can help? And, right, is it a team that I want to be with? Do I align with their values? And every time that answered all three of those questions is decidedly yes, you know, I've been happy to make a transition. When I was at Salesforce after coming back, you know, one of our partner CEOs talked to me about BMC. I got excited about where they were going. You know, we had a great outcome for the team there. Now that changed hands. And so it made time to look for something else. Got very excited about Tibco. I'd met actually the Vista portfolio team who invested in Tibco. They were facing some challenges they'd never really dealt with before at a company their scale. We had a great run there. That was uh, purchased for a good outcome for again, for most of the leadership team. And now, finally, I feel like I'm at the ultimate goal of where I thought I would be all along. an organization that serves their customers very, very, you know deeply. We work with you know a of the top ten banks, seven of the top ten global retailers, five branches of the u s. military. And actually, in my first nine months here, I've been in five different departments of defense or ministries of defense, including you know japan, u k, France, and others. So I love what we do at Tanium, which is essentially with our technology, provide visibility into every endpoint. So every computer, mobile device, and allow organizations to fix something they see wrong, to respond to threats if they see them, and essentially have certainty around their outcomes. So essentially, you know, the funnest thing for me is to be looking back at certainly CRM and everybody that works at Salesforce still is powerful, is awesome and it unlocks value for organizations. But, to me, like being able to serve, work with course, important security conscious organizations, and continue to serve and protect people, it's kind of like the best of all worlds, Bethany
1: hey, Dan. there's there's so much about what you just shared that I want to dive into with our audience. But, I want to talk a little bit more about Tanium and what drew you there and the industry in general and why you find it so exciting and compelling. I'm hearing from you right off the bat, the mission orientation and mission can be magnetic. What else, as you were looking at this opportunity, why was this the right time?
0: So I'll come back in the end if, and it's different for different people, right? So I want to be clear, like you can Find true excitement working in an organization that does something that serves people in other ways. My alignment with mission is clearly right. Helping organizations operate better and helping them protect themselves from bad actors. I got to do a lot of the former, right, at Salesforce and at BMC and others because our software essentially, you know, did important things. For example, at Tibco, you know, there wasn't a vaccine in the Western Hemisphere that was produced not by a Tibco customer. No, I'm not going to speak for Cinovacs, you know, but every other one, right? We helped and we were critical to that. When FedEx went to roll out, like right, the vaccine, Tibco was actually the driving force behind Project Warp Feed. So I love that aspect of when you're doing important things for customers. And here, obviously, we're helping protect organizations. But one thing that's clear to me over time, and it kind of goes back to you know, all the way back being in Vicenza getting the jump with my NATO allies and understanding how their parachutes work and, you know, which countries I might feel more comfortable with than others. I think that breaking down those silos between ops and security is critically important. And what Tanium does is give a single pane of glass to the ops team and the security team. And that's pretty unique in that there's a lot of point solutions. So go out and check your certificates. There's a lot of point solutions that will, you know, do, let's call it antivirus, you know, endpoint protection, but there is none that have the patents we have that allow us in real time within a network to identify every asset on the network. And so I got very excited about that from a technology perspective as well. Finally, I'll get to the customers, right? We served the Western hemisphere. We serve security conscious organizations. I value what they do and that's important to me. So again, the mission for me was important and it started from that. The technology was sexy, makes a difference and is important. Again, the mission doesn't have to be sexy, but I think a technology has to be a little bit, right? It's something to get excited about. And then are the customers that use support and value? And again, someone can make a lot of money working with customers that don't align with my values. Cool. Go do that. For me, I think those three things are important and you want to find something that fits in that Venn diagram.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, Dan, one of the things that you've shared before with Breakline is that the best leaders build ecosystems of talent around themselves. And I would love for you to talk more about this. I think leadership is so critically important, perhaps more now than ever, and would love to just hear your thoughts more on that topic.
0: There's a lot of different models for leadership out there, and I'm not going to say that one is more successful than the other, right? You know, we see examples of, let's call it the person who feels they have to have a finger on everything or, you know, all the best and most brilliant ideas are coming from them, I'm not that leader. I think none of us probably here on this call are that leaders because we've seen the power of when an organization comes together. So your trick is not just to be a good leader, right, but a leader of leaders, a leader who builds an organization where once you're aligned on what your mission is and you're aligned on your concept of operations, you can go do a lot more. And so that's important to me. Again, I'm not knocking the Elon Musk's of the world, right? Once in a while, that model works great and it, you see the remarkable results right that happen from it more often right the world is littered with failures who tried to act like an Elon Musk and didn't and didn't get lucky so i'm all about right how do i build a team how do i how am i conscious of us all having that shared consciousness right that we've heard from a certain general in his book team of teams and then drive to the right results because i saw that work in real life in very complicated situations and i'm confident that over time it gets Maybe not always the singular best results because there's a lot of risk and reward in some of the other models, but it'll always get us to where we need to go. And oh, by the way, the team comes along and everybody grows. Because you know, life's too short to be the single winner of anything. You know, that's a lonely place to be. I'm confident that those leadership types are, you know, fundamentally never, you know, going to be satisfied. Awesome. They're doing wonderful things for the economy of the world for innovation. I think you can do both. I think you can embrace the magic of and.
1: Mm. I love that. I know that you're an exceptional leader because lots of breakliners keep joining your team and I keep getting feedback. I see Daniel Sandoval's here, Ben Stein, and Kenny Sarafinko are at Tanium now. There's just like a whole world of breakliners who love to work for you, Dan Streaman. I would love to hear from you. What are you looking for when you think about hiring an outstanding person to join your team? What is it that stands well, up to you?
0: That's why I love Breakline, right? This aspect of the engine is far more important than the experience in many ways, right? So the pure talent aspect of it is critical. And you know, you've know you read enough books about you know organizations that are high-performing, you know, It's a great book about, you know, from a Navy SEAL who talks about this idea of trust and capability, right? And I'll take someone who I know I can trust, who I know aligns with the values and I know has the work ethic to make it happen. And the talent will come and the experience will come over time. And so Breakline is an exceptional organization where we reach out to people of all types now who might not have saw themselves in our industry or in our positions and can aspire to that if we build the bridge. So I come back to that over and over again. That's where we'll hire. That's where we'll continue to do it. You got to have some experience, and none of us at Breakline and I couldn't come out of a, a company command and lots of folks and come into, you know, my first role at Siebel Systems where Tom Siebel was my boss and say, look, I've led lots of people. I know how to lead. Right. You have to have the context, and so what I love about Breakline and fellow programs is providing people with the context so they can be more effective and speak in the language. But I'll hire for talent over that experience as much as possible. And this is not an ageist aspect of it, right? There are plenty of folks with talent and new experience that are changing roles, you know, well into their careers. And I love that too. But clearly, right, if you only look for experience, sometimes you get a lot of, hey, we've tried that. And, you know, that didn't work. Well, why didn't it work is the question. And so bringing all of that together into an organization, I think is a powerful piece.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to kind of bring that example to life with a person, and that person is Ben Stein. He was, I think, the first brakeliner that you ever hired, Dan, and you you hired him when you were at BMC. He was transitioning out of the Navy where he had been an f eighteen pilot, had zero experience, as I recall, in sales ops. But Dan hired him into a sales ops role. And then he subsequently followed you to TIPCO and now to Tinium. Dan, can you tell us what role Ben is in now and just describe a little bit of that me working for you?
0: So yes, you called me and said, Hey, there's this brake liner named Ben Stein. He's gonna to go to a big company. I'm sure he'll be successful there, but he's not gonna have as much fun. Would you speak with him? And I think I like literally had just left the dentist office and I got on the phone right away and called him from the parking lot to intervene. He's like, hey, you know company X needs a decision within a week. And I was like, all right, you really, you're going to, you know, you have seven days to determine the course of the rest of your life. So let's talk. And so we came to agreement, Ben, you know, went on to actually complete his MBA while working at BMC and gained a lot of skills from that aspect of it. But essentially we hired for talent and now he has experience and talent. Yeah. He's in a role a little bit above where he was. He was Working within our marketing operations team, doing analytics. When we first hired him, he's now our global vice president of sales operations and strategy. And I think his next role, right, will probably be leading a sales region because he's built those blocks over time. And Bethany, you've heard me say this, and and I know this is sometimes confusing and sometimes comforting at the same time. I really believe that all the best career planning is done in the rearview mirror, right? When we were in the military, we knew like we were going to PCS every two years and. I had like a spreadsheet and I showed it to my spouse. And here I've gone back to those aspects of it. Is this an exciting challenge, right? Is a place where I can contribute, right? You know, and market all the lines of that. And then finally, do I like the team? And if that fits, go take on that role because you'll grow from that. And if any one of those three isn't there, you're going to bump into the problem, right? If you really don't like the team and you don't like the culture and you think you'll get used to it, you probably won't if you really love the culture, but you can't get excited about the mission, it's hard. So try to, you know, optimize for those three. There's other three things that are hard, right? I always joke about, you know, you got quality of life, interesting job and, you know, pay. Those three are kind of interrelated and you optimizing all three at the same time is challenging. If it's a really cool job and it pays well, you're probably going to have to make some sacrifices, right? If it's a cool job, you don't have to make any sacrifices, guess what? You're probably working at a cool nonprofit and you're going to make plenty of money, but you do not optimize that spectrum. The others aren't negotiable, right? Those things can kind of waver and go in, in contention with one another. But the idea that, right, is it a market opportunity that I am excited about from a challenge? Can I contribute? And do I like the team? you got to have those. Those are minimum standards to get across.
1: Mm-hmm. Dan, I also want to talk a little bit more about service. Like As I look at your career, there's this thread that runs through it, and that thread is service, and it comes in different ways. Obviously, your Army service, your military service, you continue to give back on a very regular basis. You were just at West Point. I know this because a Breakline alum texted me <laughs> from <laughs> the talk that Dan was giving saying, he's here. More recently, we were just talking about the fact that you serve as a guide of visually impaired runners for road races. Like you're just an incredible person on top of your day job, which is huge and all consuming. Can you talk about creating room in your life for continuing to serve and what that means to you and why you do it?
0: So I want to be careful because every person on this call is serving their community, their family in some way. I'm convinced that. We wouldn't have found ourselves within break line if you didn't have some of those core characteristics that you and the team look for, Bethany. So I don't want to hold how I do things or what I do to any kind of pedestal because probably more than 50% or more of the team members on here serve in different ways. I found ways that worked for me. I think early on, I figured out that when our kids were young, I bought a jog stroller. And if exercise and babysitting counted for the same thing, that was a score and a win-win so yes, in some ways I serve visually impaired athletes. I run with them. It's a total win-win like scenery gets old. You have someone to talk to you the whole time. You know, it's actually one of those things where you get involved in any type of service activity and you benefit from it in meaningful ways. So, you know, I went to West Point to speak at diversity and inclusion conference. I learned a lot, right? Yeah. It was a, a day out of the time. I was able to share how I work with Breakline, how I think that diversity makes my team better because i want people to feel like they belong and they can be innovative but i'm convinced that it does come back full circle so i i don't think it's like making room it's just kind of integrated into your life and what you do and it all comes back so i'm really convinced that none of us here have volunteered for something that they regretted doing they might regret it immediately so i'll give a funny story the person that i guided in the ironman is also he has usher syndrome so he also doesn't hear well. And so he gets pretty set on his strategy and he's but he's super motivated. So he gathered five swimmers to do the trans Tahoe swim. And so to be a visually impaired swimmer that wants to swim across Lake Tahoe, you got to be pretty far out there on the intensity spectrum. And so not only did we swim, I volunteered my boat. So I was the boat captain for this. And that took a hell of a lot of energy. Like I was like the next day, I'm like, I will never, ever do that again. And now here it is, I've already decided to do it. So like you, you totally like you gain from it and you realize that in reflection, anything hard has a reward to it in and of itself. So that's how I get motivated. That's awesome.
1: Dan, we talked about this before, and I still see it with our veterans, which is a reluctance to consider customer facing roles you know, sort of a hesitation around sales or any go-to-market role, really. I'm not quite sure where it comes from, but of any community that we work with, we sense the most hesitation from veterans coming straight out of the military to consider sales roles. You grew up through sales, through marketing, on your path to CEO. Can you talk to us a little bit about the power of these roles and why they're compelling and why folks should consider them.
0: So, yeah, this is a sweet spot. And first I did see Carolyn said, she's thinking of doing that swim. I totally recommend it. It is an awesome swim. It's a good challenge. It's not easy, but you know, you're in a crystal clear Alpine Lake, you know, with five other fellow crazies. It's a great time. And if you want to do it with somebody visually impaired strapped to you, I can help you with that too. I know some folks. Okay. So Sales and customer facing roles. In the end, most of us here are somewhat more extroverted than others. It's just the nature of where we are. And right the ability to connect with others and help them see a vision of what needs to get done is also something that everybody on here has done. And I think that sales and customer facing roles in the modern era are more important than ever before, because particularly in technology, you're helping solve complex challenges. You're understanding the business problem someone is facing, listening to them explain that problem, and then helping them understand how your solution addresses that. I also you know, ran development and I ran professional services. And I think that that's an important role as you build your career to make sure you get exposed to. But I've got no problem. And I highly recommend anyone who wants to be a sales development representative or account executive or you know be involved in marketing. Because in the end, we work with ideas and concepts and people, and that's powerful. There's a great book. It's now, I think, a decade old by Daniel Pink called To Sell is Human. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. First, you should watch Glengarry Glenn Ross, that old classic movie. And that is kind of the old model of selling, the boiler room one, right? We're handing out leads and grinding people over the holiday to drive it, right? And the main character goes and writes up on the board, A, B, C. He's like, always be closing right? That it's an intense and it's a boiler room feel. Uh, Daniel Pink said sales is about attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Yeah. Coffee's for closers. Yes. So are leads, right? So Zane gets that one. But attunement, buoyancy, and clarity really are the new ABCs, which is I have the opportunity to do my research, to understand what business problem Mr. and Mrs. Customer has, right? To help them understand I can help you solve it and get clarity on that path. So I love customer-facing roles. Many of us are scared, to be honest. Now, you have to ask yourself, if you're truly an introvert and you want to go do numbers, that's cool. And that's also a great, wonderful piece. But for extroverts like me, who enjoyed the military because we were leading, I think this is powerful. The one thing I think actually holds people back is everyone on this call has been very successful their whole lives. And sales is the one place where there is a number. And some of us will have a problem dealing with the fact that, oh, I missed my number. Therefore, I wasn't as successful as I thought I was. And I say get over that because, again, I've done a lot of races where I didn't hit the time I completed, but I still finished the race. And so I encourage you to think about that aspect of it. You're all going to be more successful than you realize. I really honestly, I've probably, Bethany, helped hundreds of people find roles in sales development, business development, account executives. And I honestly am searching as hard as I can. A single one who's said that wasn't for me and I don't like it. And many of them are, I just got a text from one of them today, right? Just celebrating that he crushed his number, you know, that he's so glad he's in this role, loves the idea that he's really helping customers. And I think that's powerful. So, you know, if you're scared of that, admit it to yourself and, right, go take it on. And if you'd rather do something else, that's cool too. I'm not saying that it's the only way, but it is a way that I think many of us have the fuller brush salesperson mentality or the car salesperson mentality. And that's right. That's not modern software selling for certain. right? I got to build relationships. I got to understand a business problem. And I have to think very creatively around how I help the customer get through it.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. And I hope all of you were taking good notes. I'm going to shift now to questions from the audience, Dan, and I'll intersperse my own questions here too. The first one, is anonymous. And this person is saying, what was the most difficult decision you've had to make in your experience as a CEO? And would you be willing to share what framework you use to make that decision?
0: Sure. And this is always a challenge, but I think to me, the most difficult decisions you make a CEO are when you need to make a dramatic change to your team model, right? And regardless of whether somebody is doing their best to bring it in, they don't fit that aspect of the business, what they're working on isn't part of your new strategy and their skills don't translate. You know, we would love to have a world where everybody's skills translate to something else, but making those decisions around, you know, when someone, right, needs to leave the company and and we lay them off and help them transition. Hardest thing me as a person will ever do. It's just hands down. The strategy part's not so hard. You got to make hard calls. You got to make sure people align. You got to do your due diligence and truly is the 80% solution is better than 100% executed late. But the decisions that impact people are always going to be the hardest. So all you can do is the best you can to help that person transition and explain it to their peers. And I feel, you know, I'm sure someone can point out a mistake that my organization has made as I've been leading it before. But we've gone through these transitions. And generally, you know, I'm still very much in touch with people, you know, who are impacted that way. We tried to communicate in a way that was compassionate. And those are always going to be the hard things we do. No, but just we make those same hard decisions in service as well. But in business, it's a, it's a key challenge because you're balancing, right, the growth of the company, your stakeholders investment, what your customers need. And in the end, we have to optimize for those things first and foremost.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dan. Okay, we have a question from Kalia Ferguson. She says, I aspire to pursue roles in customer success. As a leader who has likely encountered various career opportunities, what advice or insights can you share about staying focused on a customer success career path and what qualities or skills do you believe are crucial for success in this field?
0: And so I believe customer success is very similar. You know, when I was talking about sales, I think customer facing roles are very similar in this idea that, you know, you got to bring attunement. You have to be able to listen, right? You have to bring buoyancy, a positivity that... You know, not the fake one that we get when we call, you know, AT&T or something. Oh, I'm very sorry. experience. Like, you know, real compassion and understanding and connection is going to be key. And then understanding where technology is going. There's a lot of opportunities to leverage technology. A great, I don't know if you work with Gainsight, but a great, you know, organization named Gainsight that has great software. But having the tenacity to deal with tough challenges, the empathy, right? To understand a customer's problem, but also to explain, right, how they get there. And then finally, the technology capacity and curiosity to know your technology is powerful. And so this is a very interesting twist, which is I've seen lots of customer success team members kind of learn all of the the ins and outs of how to do the job without learning their technology per se. And I would encourage you to develop a curiosity for the technology. You don't have to be able to code, but go do the extras to understand how it works, to understand what competitors look like. But those are the ways that I would think about that role. And I love that you're thinking about it because it's certainly a growth market, Clea. There's no shortage of organizations that need great customer success teams.
1: Dan, we have a Navy veteran, Natalie Bettinelli, who is currently interviewing with TNM. And she has a question for you. She actually has two questions, Dan. She says, what are your top three priorities at Tanium since taking on the CEO role? And two, what does the growth of Tanium look like in the next five years? And she also says, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
0: So, okay. So top three priorities when taking over, first and foremost is to make sure we make the appropriate alignments to our strategy and people's alignment to the strategy. So the very first thing we did, and again, I think this is a great book, which probably most all of you read, Measure What Matters, the idea of using objectives and key results to how you set your framework. We were founder-led. We have very brilliant technical founders. But right as you go beyond 2,000 people, right, you can't connect with everyone without a framework. So the first piece of a priority was rolling out OKRs with strategic priorities, operational ones, and then the key results of that. And we have 12, which we share. Got to do that first and foremost because if you don't do that, right, you don't have a framework. Now you go out and check that hypothesis with customers and partners. So my priority, if any of you have kind of seen, is to get out to customers. I think as a leader, the best decisions are never made in your office; they're made in someone else's, either your team, your partner, or your customers. So I prioritize dramatically. My first hundred days, I met with more than 100 customers. Some in Zoom, some in person. Like I said, I personally visited five different defense agencies, not just the U.S. one. That's powerful for me. I've been to Japan three times, right, in the first 90 days. So getting out and hearing from customers and partners to validate what you're aligned to as you start to think about modifying that. And the next, obviously, the team, right? So I meet with all levels of key leaders first in a forum where we get a chance to them to tell me what they do and then set up that one-on-one cadence with others. There's no, anyone that gives you the magical system, I think is always going to be adjusting that for the framework. In the case of Tanium, we're doing very well. This is an aspect where our founders knew that to go to the next level and continue to accelerate, you know, it was time for a CEO who likes as as our founders call it, doing CEO things to come in and do that. So I was fortunate in that. I have a great friend who just took over advanced auto parts. He was my roommate as a lieutenant in the officer basic course we've been friends ever since. It was a CEO of Home Depot Supply. Now he's a CEO of Advanced Auto Parts. Like They're in a challenge. Their stock's gone down. Their two main competitors have gone up. He's kind of ripping the Band-Aid off in different ways. And he's perfect for that. And insider stock tip, if you want to invest on just on people, I'd invest in Advanced Auto Parts, but you know that's just me. Don't take this advice. Go talk to your own advisor. But I really do believe that each context will matter in what someone does. So for Tanium, we're still growing dramatically. We have this huge opportunity with Tanium Cloud. This is all about accelerating. So the first thing is, if we're going to accelerate, let's get everybody aligned on our objectives and key results, what we accomplish this year. Let's communicate to our customers about what those priorities are and, and hear back, and then let's talk to the team to get their feedback on what needs to happen next. As far as the next five years, I think the one thing you'll see us continue to do is invest in and I, you know, I'll sound like everybody else but how automation helps everyone do their jobs better. We partner with Microsoft and OpenAI very closely. Our ability to now take all that sensor data, which we can get from every endpoint, and provide autonomous endpoint management, right? not just converged endpoint management, is the next level for us. And so that I can have a co-pilot, if you will, guide me as a technologist through what I need to do on my endpoints and manage. So we're excited about it. I think, again, taking Tanium Cloud to the market is a powerful piece. So if you combine that autonomous with the idea that I used to be mostly reserved for the fortune 500, because you know it was difficult to use, you had to go deploy us on a server. I mean, eight of the top 10 banks, they all saw the value. Now we can bring that down to organizations of all sizes. And if you spend some time on taney.com, you'll see us work with school systems, you know, with local governments and agencies, with hospitals, all of whom sadly are going to be more and more targeted because typically right, they weren't as targeted by bad actors because there wasn't as much resource. But now that some of the larger ones have Tanium and have some of our partners, they're better protected. The next level down are going to be those areas that impact others' livelihood or those who are less protected. So we love the fact that we can continue to grow in that market, I think, for as far as I can see.
1: Thank you, Dan. We have an Air Force veteran and TIBCO alum here, Cody Freeborn. And he says, hey, Dan, thanks for the sales book recommendation. On that topic, what do you currently spend your off time consuming? Are there any other books or podcasts that you recommend?
0: Yeah. One of the great parts about training for races is you spend a lot of time running alone. And again, because I travel a lot, I don't have running partners, so I listen to books intently. I listen to everything I can. So the most interesting two books, which will kind of blow your mind from an aspect of out of context, I listened to Lincoln by John Meacham, and then I listened to Grant, and I'm drawing a blank. It'll come to me in a second, by Ron Chernow. A reason I listen to them is not necessarily because I think Grant was a successful president. You know, He was certainly a successful general. But the idea of the tensions and the challenges that both of them wrestled with a long time ago, but that resonate now to some of the things we see here. I think the way Lincoln approached problems and bringing people along to solutions is really powerful. And I think always taking time to step back and realize we're not in this single point in time alone. History doesn't repeat itself, but it absolutely rhymes. And those two, I think, were very interesting to immerse myself back in that time and to think how far we've come. The Lincoln book was actually called, And There Was Light, it's a biblical passage. Right now I'm listening, and this was actually written in 2009, to a book by David Friedman called The Next 100 Years. And pretty insightful of what he wrote in 2009, of kind of what we're going through now, the one key takeaway is there'll clearly be disruption globally, internationally, but this idea that we are in a unique point in time for the United States, that we should cherish it, and not mess it up I think is powerful and I read that once before I re listening to it right now but again for standards I would go with my kind of ones I recommended measure what matters team of teams to sell as human are ones that I kind of always resonate with very very archaic and you have to take it in the context of its time but you know how to win friends and influence people I think is instructive on human nature it's also a great reminder of how far we've come from someone who came at things from a good perspective, but was way misguided in the way he phrased things. But coming back to right, the most important word to any person is the sound of their own voice. right? And coming back to that and recognizing that engaging with others is a powerful mechanism to make things happen for good, usually. And I like that aspect of it. You know, There's a piece around the golden rule, which I've kind of modified, I think you've heard me do this, say this before, Bethany. The thing I learned from that is this golden rule we all grew up with, which is treat others the way you want to be treated. is good, but it's not hundred percent accurate. I think it's should actually treat others the way they want to be treated. Right. So take the time to understand their perspective, their background, what brings right. Their unique self to whatever you're engaged in and treat them that way versus the way you want to be treated. Cause I have a different mindset, right? Like I went to ranger school. I loved it when R.I.s yelled at me and motivated me. Not everybody feels that way, right? And so R.I. is a ranger instructor, sorry. But I have to recognize that that the world is better because it's not filled with damn treatments because we drive each other nuts. So I think figuring out how to learn about how others want to be treated and treat them that way while still coming back to what your common bonds are, I think is a powerful tool. And that book, again, "When Friends and Influence People helps you with that. But I have to caveat like it is, you know, you've got to give the writer the grace of when it was written.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dan. Anonymous question. As we look to have long, multi-decade careers in tech, there are a few levels. I see manager, director, VP, C-suite, With what feels like very different responsibilities and big leaps between them, what do you look for in your direct reports to see when they're ready to take on more responsibility?
0: Well, I'm proud to say that I've had plenty of direct reports that have gone on to take more responsibility. So I've got two previous direct reports that are now CEOs of other companies, and I love that aspect to them. They've taken on broader roles in other places, and that's fine. Like, right? I want to be clear. Yes, certain folks are in the stage of their career where we've been able to work at a couple companies together and i think that's powerful but i also respect that if someone finds right the best other job for them my feelings aren't hurt i want them to find the best other job but if i can find a place for them and it fits our role i will the thing i won't do is create a role for somebody or move somebody out who i think is doing their best work and can grow just because it's somebody i'm familiar with i think that's a risk and a challenge and i'll be you know blunt i'll get on that the, psychi- you know, the psychologist couch here with this team, you know, I got to caution on that. TIBCO has gone through a transition. They've got new owners. are taking a different strategy. You know, there are a lot of great team members right at TIBCO that I would love to bring in, but I have to be thoughtful about that and make sure we're also continuing to bring in other diverse aspects and insights. So as a leader, you have to make sure you're not just going with what's comfortable for you. You're not just going to the same methods you used before. You know, you have to always be questioning Internally, am I doing this because I'm comfortable with it, or am I doing this because it's the right decision? There's another great book on that that escapes my mind right now that i that I listened to recently around always question and a, that's the biggest thing I look for in leaders, Bethany. If someone can be part of the team, be open-minded to where they might have experienced something differently and there's a new way to try something, that's the best you can ask for in a leader.
1: hey Dan. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the Economic moment that we're in. And because you've been around Silicon Valley long enough to see a couple of accelerated cycles and a couple of decelerated cycles, and we're in a cycle of deceleration right now. Love for you to just provide some perspective on it. You know, for folks who want to zoom out and think about their career in increments of decades, how do we sort of frame the moment that we're in? Because it can be painful, you know, when you find yourself on the wrong side of a layoff, for example.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that as yogi bear said predictions are very difficult to make particularly ones about the future so i'll be very cautious in this aspect of it and say i don't know exactly what's coming but i've absolutely seen the cycles to put this in context i made the decision to leave the military in 98. i thought we were going to be in decades of peace Uh, you know we had defeated the soviet union essentially i love the fact that we were serving but i didn't see us having to to deploy anywhere anytime soon Three years later, I was very wrong, sadly. Likewise, 1998 was, and maybe m- not many people remember this, pets.com, web van, right? Anybody remember those names? Like they were on fire. Their stock was through the roof. Everybody was dot-comming it. I graduated six months later, that all blew up, right? And I'm in Silicon Valley. So I can tell you that cycles do change. Everything right? that goes down eventually comes up and everything goes up. Not everything. The economy in general will have the cycles. Clearly organizations are skeptical right now about growth at all costs, and it's a simple reason. when interest rates are high, money now matters. So if we look back to the environment where we might have made the decision to leave the military or you know do this four or five years ago, who remembers what interest rates were? Like near zero, right? near zero. So if I'm a venture capitalist or I'm giving you a loan, and you're going to make money far out in the future because you're growing fast, but you're going to spend money now. Awesome. Because the money in the future is just as valuable as money now, but at 7% interest, right? That money is far less valuable out into the future. I'm less likely to make a bet like that. So that's really what you're seeing. It's, you know, as long as inflation stays kind of where it is, interest rates will stay high and you'll see people being careful. I'm optimistic again, technology, you know, gets us through this again, Next 100 years was written in 2009, right after the housing you know bubble burst. And David Friedman was pretty prophetic about that, about like, we'll see these cycles and, and get through them. This will be a cycle. I can't tell you how long it'll be. I can't tell you exactly what the factors will be. I don't think it's AI alone, which takes us out of this. In the end, fundamental economic cycle says, if we want to invest, the cost to invest needs to not be 7%. And when that starts to happen, you'll see organizations you know hire more aggressively in those aspects of it. So, you know, but we re-bracket, we understand. Again, I'm very glad. I for those of you who have different politics, I don't care. I'm glad that I stayed in Silicon Valley. I'm glad that I, you know, innovated with companies that had headquarters here and I engage with folks because in the end, painful as it was to have two little kids and a lot of you know student debt, I'm very happy where I am. And it's because we saw that, that cycle would happen. Now that end. I didn't take, you know, huge dramatic risks. And for some of you, that may be the thing, like go, now's an awesome time, you know, if you got a low burn rate to go start something up because not many people are doing that, right? But you got to be comfortable with what that means for your family. And for me, with two small children, I didn't want to take that risk on them. So I spent my time, as I said, you know, building the skill sets, which would make me a better CEO in the future than I would be at that starting point.
1: Thank you, Dan. My teammate, Brandon Self, is asking, Dan, speaking of predictions, do you have any gut feelings on the score of the Army-Navy game?
0: Other than Army wins? No. If you'll be there look me up, I'll be at the game. My nephew is now what we call a cow there. So <laughs> I wasn't a success. I took my kids to visit. For those of you who heard a podcast, I went to visit West Point. It was April. The sun was out. Everybody's out running. I'm thinking, how awesome is this? I didn't know. Hey, I'm from Florida. I didn't know how cold it would be. I didn't realize they're all out running because their fitness test was like two weeks away and they're essentially cramming. I did no due diligence whatsoever. So I do not recommend that. I didn't learn from that. I took my kids to visit on a reunion and it was just like dumping rain. It was miserable. It's so my kids are like, heck no, I'm not going to this place. I structured every visit my nephew made there like an artisan. He went to the comms house and the comms wife gave him cookies because my classmate and took him to the football game. So it's all about selling, set the right conditions Think about that. If you go into customer facing roles, set those conditions well, but he's there. And so I always go to army Navy games, go to make sure he has a great experience. Cause you know, i sometimes feel guilty.
1: <laughs> I love that. John Zur is asking, looking back at your transition out of the military, what do you wish you would have known, but didn't at the time that would have helped you approach that process?
0: It's a wonderful question. And again, I recognize everybody here is in a different place in their life cycle and their time. Again, I went from being a company commander and having a lot of authority and interaction with hundred soldiers. This was a you know mechanized infantry company. So lots of inventory and equipment, if you will, to uh, being an individual contributor again. And at first it was hard for me to like get my head around that aspect of it. And, you know, my first manager wasn't great. And, you know, those aspects of it. I think the biggest thing I wish I knew is everything passes over time. A decade later, I was able to hire that manager, right? Into a better role for her. So like, it will come, be patient, know you've made the right call. Don't look back and overly, and it was very hard. Let's put it in perspective, right? I left the military because I didn't think we were going to be deploying or serving anytime soon. And of course, now my friends were deploying and serving and that was hard. And I don't want to all dismiss the risks that they undertook, but you know, Bethany, I'm a licensed skydiver. I'd scoop, you know, I'd like risk, but I also recognize I could have very well, you know, been hurt and changed my whole trajectory of life. So biggest thing I'd say is don't look back. The rose colored glasses are a real thing. Leaving the military or leaving your net last job, right? You'll kind of remember, start to remember things you liked, and you'll be face to face with things you don't like in your new role. Just you know, get over that and embrace it, right? You know, embrace whatever the new situation is and make the most of that. Because that's what sets the tone for the future. There's all this advice about networking. And sure, yeah, the best thing you can do is do the best job you can in the role you're in. And that takes care of everything else. Honest to goodness. I don't care if you're best friends with your boss's boss's boss and you know you play golf together every Friday. If you're not doing great work in the role you're in, it won't matter. And if you're doing great work, it won't matter if you don't know, right, your boss's boss's boss. It doesn't mean you shouldn't network get insights, make yourself a better contributor. But if you're following one of those people who's networking for the sake of, hey, I want to be top of mind when they talk about the next role, I just think you're going about it in a way that'll be frustrating for you.
1: Hey, Dan, I hear a couple of things pretty consistently from our veterans as they transition from the military to the private sector. And one is continuing to search for what one of them described as purpose with a capital P you never had to think about what that was as you were serving in the military. And the second one is, will I ever be as close with my colleagues as I was in the military? Can you speak a bit to that second one?
0: Yeah. So many. I think purpose of the capital P first foremost, right? You know, it was taking care of my family and being able to do that. And then it was helping my colleagues and you get that over time. Again, I think that I'm fortunate. My P's gotten bigger as I think about the roles and the companies I've had the opportunity to serve. So I want to Recognize that the camaraderie piece is hard. You know, look, and we think of the world of trade offs, right? There's nothing like shared misery or shared purpose or shared hardships to build, right? Camaraderie and teamwork. And you may or may not ever really get to that same level again, but you can find close proximities to that. You can get involved in other service organizations that have things to kind of scratch part of that itch, if you will. And that's one of the reasons I'm here. But yeah, I'd say you got to come to grips with that. Like it's not the same day in and day out. And now it's very fun. I've got classmates and friends who are two stars and three stars, and they do love their purpose, right? But their life's been challenging in different ways. And, you know, as they start to look at what it means to retire, they look pretty enviously at at us that haven't, right? And so there's all these trade-offs. So I come back to don't look back too much. Cherish what you did. Cherish the things you, you did. Look forward, look present. And do the best role you know you can in the role you are versus trying to compensate for something that you imagine you've lost because you know sometimes those things can't be replaced.
1: Dan, a TIBCO and Army veteran, Daniel Sandoval, who you know, is curious. There's so much growth happening at Tanium. Y'all are in a great spot as a company. He's wondering, are there any headwinds? Are there any challenges that yeah. facing that you're open to talking about?
0: Sure. Well, I think the first one is clearly the macro environment. We have grown up as an organization dealing with the Fortune 500. So 70% of the Fortune 100 are customers. And if you're Fortune 100 and you know you have anybody in your organization that understands economics, you've taken some debt, right? Debt helps your equity, like the business school classes around this. And guess what? When the debt, cost of debt, meaning interest rates go up, you're finding budget constraints. So helping our customers deal with the ROI challenge is probably the first step, Daniel, on that front. And so, you know, we used to have the very first go-to tool was the Tanium risk assessment. Where are you vulnerable? What are your challenges? That's important still, but now we also start with the ROI calculator, right? What's your return on investment is going to be when you deploy Tanium to take out point solutions and solidify on on a few select platforms. So that's in that segment. Where that's counterbalanced, where I'm excited is again, we took the fundamental patented architecture that enables the agents to communicate to one another, but we took it out of the server environment on an enterprise and deployed it on Tanium Cloud. So now what used to be the reserve, if you will, of the Fortune 500, I can now do organizations of all sizes. So again, I'm working with school districts, local governments, local agencies, any business with you know a thousand you know, team members or so is now a customer and that's really exciting for us. My headwind is building the skill sets, right? And the model and the customer success to come full circle, the Calia's piece, right? That helps at that scale because that's not a muscle we had. So building and you know rebuilding your plane while flying, it is always a challenge, but we got a great team in place to do that. And we are like everybody else, being very careful with our hiring right now as we look and see what the economy is doing. But I see, again, I didn't join because I didn't think we weren't. I got this stage in your career, you get to be picky. I was very picky about this role.
1: Dan, I know we're coming up on time. I thought we could end on one final question, which is coming from my teammate, Casey Deeds. And she says, Who do you turn to for advice and inspiration, particularly in tough moments?
0: Yeah. In the end, I just think there's no better proponent for you than you. And this isn't to say that I don't take advice. I have a tremendous board. Ben Horowitz is on my board. I'll talk to him this evening. Mark Fields, the former CEO of Ford, is on my board. Like, talk about someone who went through tough challenges, you know, during that piece. So you gain a lot from having resources to connect to, get their insights from. But in the end, no one's you know going to help you through right, any tough challenge right? than you are. So first, you have to have confidence in yourself that you'll get through this, that nothing stops you completely. And then being confident enough to go get advice and insights from others to incorporate into it. And sometimes that sounds like this, you know, my self-talk cycle is I can do this. I've got it. And then I talk to somebody and they're pointing out the things that I could do better. And like, now you got to process that, right? The cognitive dissonance of those pieces and bring it together. You know, my family and my spouse, my wife, Terry, is just a phenomenal supporter. She's been by my side since I first, you know, showed up as a second lieutenant. And that's powerful. And I'll kind of come back to something my dad shared and I'll try not to choke up. My dad will be 88, getting pretty senior, sharp mind, very bad eyesight, very bad hearing. But he came to my business school graduation, and I was lucky to go to Harvard. And the dean said this, all the success in business will not make up for failure at home. And I think that's a powerful statement. Now, home means a lot of things, right? It could be a family, it could be a relationship, it could be your friends. But for the dean of Harvard Business School, right, to say that about remembering who you are as a person, I thought was the most powerful thing I could ever take away. My dad you know, reminds me of it regularly. And every time he says it, we both kind of, you know, choke up. So I think that's probably a thing I would leave the team with, which is lean in hard, like do your best work, enjoy it, but recognize you're a whole person and your whole person isn't just your job. And if, you know, a layoff happens or a team reorganizes, roll with that, roll with who you are, know you're a much more complete person than just this, but, you know, embrace it as a ride. It's an adventure. It's, you know, one of those things that will, I think all of us are still, if we look globally, right, we're in the 1% of the 1% and fortune. We've been granted amazing things by force of nature, by force of whatever we believe. We're lucky. And to remind ourselves every day that I think is the most important thing we can do.
1: Dan Streetman, CEO of Tanium, one of Breakline's very first supporters. It's not an overstatement to say we're here because in 2016 or something, Dan said, I want to get in the ring with you all. So appreciate you, Dan. Now, as always, thank you for being here with us.
0: Cheers. Great to see everybody and always a pleasure. I really love everything Breakline represents. And thank you for the opportunity.
1: Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling.
0: Yes, we would
1: love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.